Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Series 3 of Humans of Excess Manchester with me, Clint Boone. This series is sponsored by our friends over at Safer Roads GM, helping us to keep ourselves and each other safe on the roads of Manchester. This week I'm joined by legendary bassist and member of the Stone Roses, Gary Manfield, a.k.a. Manny. Manny talks about discovering more about his family's Irish heritage from none other than Primal Scream frontman Bobby Gillespie. And he went, it is, it's right, it's right. And I said, what? He said, your family brought Johnny Marr's mum up. And he describes what it was like when the Stone Roses took off. My dream from school was being a band, make a record, go on top of the pops. <laughs> and we did that pretty quick. <laughs> you know, and then it's like, well, you've got to set yourself some new targets, boy, yeah. you know. It gives a great pleasure to welcome to Humans Excess Manchester a chap who's not only one of the most highly regarded British musicians of all time, he's also one of the most loved Mancunians ever. It's my old mate, Gary Manfield, a.k.a. Manny, a.k.a. The Nod. How are you? I'm all right, Clint. <laughs> Good yeah. to see you, brother. You're looking well. Well, do you know what? I've neglected to have a shave, as scruffy sod that I am. <laughs> uh, we're going to be talking, obviously, about your amazing career. Uh, we're going to be talking about your life in general. Uh, we're going to talk about Manchester, which is the main reason we do these podcasts. First, I want to talk about you. 
the little baby, little baby Gary. Where were you born and when, Annie? Uh, Manchester, November 1962. Was it Crumpsall Hospital? No, well, do you know what? I always was led to believe it wasn't. It wasn't. It was the MRI. Oh, was it? As it turns out, yeah. So I'm not as North Man because uh, I would have you believe. Right. And is it true you're a poorly baby? Well, you told me you were a poorly I was, baby. I, I think I was born almost three months primo. Right. So I weighed two pounds summer. So, Joe, back in the day there... You were just put on the back step, and if you were still kicking in the morning, you're all right. You, you've got a chance, haven't you? You know what I mean? There they am. That's the story of your life, isn't it? Still, <laughs> yeah. still find yourself up back step quite often, don't you, mother? Very often, my friend. <laughs> we'll mention the story in a bit about the time that me and my wife, Charlie, thought you died on our couch. We'll <laughs> touch on that later. Back to your childhood, though. Your, your mum was from a very strong well, Irish background, wasn't she? Yeah, do you know where? It, well, I don't know whether you had Johnny in the other week. I don't know whether he touched on the, the, the plaque thing that. Uh, had just been in the village of Athai in County Kildare, which is obviously probably the county town of where they're from. And they both lived, there's a strip of seven houses. My family lived two from the end of one end and Johnny's mum lived at the other end. And uh, it, there's nothing there. There's, a, there's a, a, an old church, a school about as big as a garden shed. Six or seven houses and loads of fields and stuff. And it's weird how me and him have come from that lineage Ended up doing what we're doing in the same city and, and you know, and in the same profession and stuff. Have you always known about that connection between your ancestors and no, Johnny Mars? You know, Johnny's uncles, Lukey and Birdie and, all, and their family were always talked about off my family. But how I come to find out was um, Gillespie from the screen, Bob, just got us on one side one, one day and said, uh, what's your mum's maiden name? So I said, well, it's, it's a bit of a weird one, but uh, Farrell, you know. And he went, it is, it's right, it's right. And I said, what? He said, your family brought Johnny Marr's mum up. And then I did a bit of investigation with uh, with my auntie Ellen, Ellen Farrell. And uh, she said, oh, yeah, the Mars and, and, and her family were the Dorans and the Doyles. And, so, uh, and they put a plaque on the local, is yeah, it a local pub they put the plaque well, they, on? They, they've done, um, there's a place in Athai where everybody's parents from there who were leaving Ireland, which they all had to do to, to go to the mainland England to, to get work or even beyond. That's where the bus went from outside this bar and it's called the Emigrants Bar. Oh, really? And it's in this little town square in Athai. So it's quite apt. Um, a guy, has, a, a guy column has, has put this thing together like there's a, a bit of a tourist thing for the area. And it turns out like Johnny Cash's granddad was from round there and bloody blah and all these other people and me and Johnny. So um, my mum would have loved it and it's come full circle and I took my kids there and I took my kids to the graveyard where all the, the fellows are buried and you know, all the Mars are buried there and the Doyles and uh, all our respective families and just give them a bead on their Irishness, you know, that they, they have got... They have got that in the blood in the bloodstream, so uh, it was nice for them to see, kind of where it where it's from. And you look at the size of an house, and it was like eight kids living in it and stuff. Yeah. Insane, isn't it? <laughs> you know what, what, about I mean? you, what about your dad's background? He wasn't Irish, was he? No, my dad was from um, Stockport, I Lane, Disley. Posh. Well, no, not the posh. <laughs> not, nobody in family, my family's ever been posh, Clint. As posh you, you, you know, you met half of them. But um, yeah, he was. Uh, it, my granddad and his dad, George, worked on the railway. You know, when I can, I can remember as a kid being tucked to just where B&Q is in Stockport now, there was like a goods yard there and my granddad's job was to operate the turntable that turned the steam trains and that round. Wow. And I think his dad before him was in uh, 
LNW, London Northwest Rail Line. So he worked for that. My dad was a chef. I remember. Well, he was a celebrated chef as well. well it, it, it was good. It, it was trained off a... Uh, off what you would probably call a Michelin-starred guy. He ended up working at the Bernie Inns in Oldham, didn't he? Bless him, but all that talent, and uh, he was just happy doing that, you know. But people used to talk about him, because this is in the days before, we're talking like the early 80s here, as I remember it, and uh, people talked about him as a local celebrity chef who was that good at doing what he did. Oh, it was, it, it was a, don't get me wrong, he was a, an excellent cook and, and an excellent fella, you know. Uh, it's not like myself, pretty friendly, you know, dead easy going and approachable and stuff. Yeah, very down-to-earth bloke. Yeah. And my brother followed him into that, cooking. Little Greg. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I ran away to join the circus, as you know. <laughs> and you helped me for that, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I've got you a little I mean? bit of part, played a little part in that. So an happy childhood then, generally? Yeah, it was an happy childhood. You know, we, we weren't blessed with uh, with riches or... But it was a lot of love in the house, uh, a lot of um, encouragement. You know, like I was always encouraged to follow me, follow me dream. Like, most of the time, I know your family are pretty... Uh, pretty bohemian in that way and it would yeah. always give you enough rope to hang yourself or or tie the world up with you know what I mean yeah. so I was always indulged slightly but not overindulged you know what I mean I never never spoke with it but they always said you know if, if you choose your path just go with it mm. which I think's pretty good you can be a bit too controlling can't you with, with folk Definitely, and I'm you know me. I was never to be controlled. <laughs> loose cannon, <laughs> I'm very loose, mate. Yeah, yeah. What about music? Was there a lot of music in the house when you were growing up? But not the kind of music like you'd expect, like your your Elvis or Beatles or something. There was a lot of a uh, lot of Irish music, a lot of folk, in a way. Nat King Cole, Sinatra, Johnny Mathis. My dad was a Woody Guthrie and Dylan kind of guy, and. I think my dad liked jazz. There's a guy called Maynard Ferguson who we had records of. I think he's a jazz trumpeter. Right. And then the stylistics and stuff oh, like beautiful. that. You know what I mean? I yeah. used to love them. So like a bit of like Philly Soul kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there was always music about, but it wasn't kind of like the be all and end all. It was nothing revolved around it in our house. It was it was, it was left to me to to basically grow up through the, the glam period of the early 70s is when I started getting into it, into getting into Slade and... You know, a bit of uh, maybe T-Rex, Bowie for sure. Mm. What about school? How did you get on at school? Did you thrive or were well, you a bit of a... I, I think when I was at, at junior school, I went to uh, St Dunstan's in Moston. I think I did shine on there. I, I stood out because I was always a, I was a pretty studious kid for reading. and It's like one of my kids, Gene, now is, is an absolute knowledge box, you know what I mean? He's got very retentive memory and stuff. So I was always, I was always for feeding my head. You know, feeding me had with other stuff in later life, but yeah. uh, but I was always for uh, for knowledge, you know, and uh, wanting to know about things. I think he always wanted more than he had, or I wanted to uh, look beyond the parameters that were set for me by my social leanings and, and and where you were brought up. But I think he did well at St Dunstan's, and I th- there was some legend that I got the second highest score in, in the 11 plus in my year at school. I don't know, someone's mum was on the JMB or something, and I think it might be a load of crap, to be <laughs> fair. But yeah, I'll take it. Yeah. Because I always had a pretty uh, computer esque memory for for recall and stuff like that. And then when I went to uh, secondary school, got myself a place at uh, Severian College when it was an all boys school. And yeah. uh, was kind of taught off geezers in dresses, a lot, a lot of monks and stuff, which is a bit Same of a here. weird one. Same here. We yeah. were at Dallas Hall Brothers. Yeah, right? yeah. The, so the Severian Brothers. And, and our Greg went, ended up got a kind of Langley, which had brothers there. And I suppose it's 
it's a weird one that because they, they pretty much drummed religion out of me. Sharpish. I hear it. I, that's exactly what happened to me. I've been saying that for years. And I, I hear it a lot, and we've heard it on this podcast where people got of our generation got, like I said, they got the religion punished out of them. And uh, yeah, man, <laughs> no, it's like uh, I don't want to cause offence to no one because everyone's free to do what they they want to do. As mm. Bobby Gillespie said in some bloody tune or another, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it certainly made me question everything. Yeah, and then. By about the third year, along came the Clash and the the Slaughter of the Dogs and Punk. Yeah. So much the same as yourself, and that really, that really opened me up and changed me in, in, into uh, a what I, what I loved and b what I foresaw I, I really wanted to do later in life. I didn't want to do anything but being a band from then onwards. You know, yeah. I think my grades started suffering, started wagging it a bit. You know, like you do. Somehow I managed to big borrow and steal my first guitar out of a catalogue or something and then started from that. That's where that's where that started. I've never thought of this before, but just sort of came to them when you're saying it about do you reckon that kids that went through that period of education that we went through in in my case the early seventies, you were three or four years later than me, but we went through that horrible period of getting the um the, the punishment at school and then not a happy time, then suddenly, bang, this punk thing happens. And it was almost like that was sent from heaven for us, wasn't it? If we'd have grown up in an happier school environment and with gentle folk looking after yeah, us... We'd have been into B.A. Robertson or something yeah. rubbish, you know so what I mean? Almost, it's almost like the two are intrinsically linked, isn't it? That, that, you know, that, that gruesome period of education yeah. but <laughs> followed think, by this heavenly uh, music movement. Well, that, that kind of forced you into a, a rebellion stance, didn't it, in a way? You know what I mean? And I think the punk thing coming along it was just... Like you said, it was heaven sent. Now it was just at the right time. It spoke to us about what we were feeling and what what were going on, you know, socially and, and what have you in, in the world. And uh, it gave me politics as well. You know what I mean? It, yeah. it, it made me sort of start questioning and thinking about socioeconomic stuff and all that. You know what yeah. I mean? Which is which? Which is cool. With bands like the Clash, you look at and... kids these days, mate, and they don't have politics. They don't have nothing, do they? It's, it's sterile for a minute. We had, we had causes and we had stuff to believe in. Mm. Like you said, with the clash and all that, I would never know anything about the Sandinistas and stuff going on in, in Central America and stuff like that. And, you know, the plight of plight of black people in Brixton and stuff like that. So it was it was like a political radio station, wasn't it? You know, yeah. listening to those, uh, those tunes. It was an awakening, wasn't it, for us? Yeah. What about, um, you got into Scooter, didn't you, soon after that? It became a bit of a Scooter boy. This yeah. Is before I'd met you, This I didn't know you at this point. Yeah, well, probably from about 79, so 78, late 78, early 79, and I think I was just coming out of the punk thing, probably getting just into being a bit of a penny boy or something like that, or a bit of a half penny boy, half mod or something. And I got my first Lambretta off uh, my stepdad's uncle Ian Barlow from Middleton. And that started me off on that, and then from there, I began to explore, like... Tamla Motown music and like older brothers like my mate Lee Butterworth, his older brother used to got a Wigan and and uh, we see was listening to his sevens and all that from from the casino and and you know learning about the Motown and stacks thing and then from that you know the more the moddy thing crept in you were going to all nighters on scooter runs and then you were discovering stuff like Hendrix and Freak Beat and Garage you know the and nuggets and pebbles and all that kind of stuff. Mm. All the while you're assimilating these bits of knowledge into your own canon, aren't you? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And that's uh, 
you know, I, I can't read a note of music. You probably can because because you, you're better than I am at it. But <laughs> give over. But <laughs> I, I, I think you can learn so much from other people from just ingesting so many different styles of stuff. Mm. Like I remember the gigs we used to go to, go and watch bloody all sorts of people, didn't we? Yeah. Mad amounts of gigs, always going gigs. Yeah. And 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 there's your knowledge. That's right there. That, you know, I think kids need to pick up their ears a bit more these days and and get with that that concept somewhat. Absolutely. So this is a, you were living in Failsworth. Early 80s, I think when I first met you, 1983, Miner's Arms, Oldham. Yeah. The pub's still there. There's no plaque on it yet. <laughs> uh, but my mate, Chris Goodwin, who was our mutual friend, even though I'd never met you, Chris was playing drums in a band called Wheatstone's Bridge. Yeah, the, with uh, Malik. Malik Green on guitar. And who was the big bass man who used to do cartoons about with his big Selma amp. <sighs> Remember uh, them cartoons? Yeah, yeah. I've still got them all at home. <laughs> was it called the big lad? I know, yeah. Well, there was Howard. Howard was bass, wasn't he? Then Kev McGladry took over and... Yeah. Batch, batch on drums. Oh, I, yeah. yeah. But anyway, so Chris, one night, Saturday night, 83, says, this is my mate, man, he told me about you. Yeah. He's got his mates into all the psychedelic music, bit of a mod, little fella. Spends a lot of time on back doorstep. <laughs> he, says, <laughs> he says, he's coming up to his gig, because I used to go see Chris every Saturday night, and, he, and I remember him introducing, I remember where we stood, we met, we, all three of us stood there chatting. And I think if I'm not because we'd said then let's get some, let's do some jamming together, let's yeah, start yeah, a band. Yeah. And I think it was it was either the following day or the following Sunday. We all got together in the mill in Ashton and we right. started then every weekend for like a year and a bit, just recording these mad sessions. Oh, it was crazy, wasn't it? Great time. Anything goes, you know, like uh, metal smashing uh, bottles going in in metal bins. <laughs> uh, it was like it would need to make hospital beds or something like that. Well, it was a furniture company. I was I'd ended up accidentally becoming a company director. I was like 21, 22 or something. Right. But it meant I had a bit of control over what to do with some of the space in the, the yeah. building. But we, we originally started jamming just on the shop floor, didn't we, next to the welding set and the yeah, guy bridge, wasn't guy it, bridge, it yeah. Called, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, the guy bridge mill. But yeah, like you said, we just it was quite some of it was psychedelic, some of it was like industrial Einstein's end and yeah. it? fire extinguishers going off and that. But then we had the, this one bit where we got a microphone, set it in to record put the mic on the floor and then drove the forklift truck over it. <laughs> so you can hear the recording going, you hear the forklift truck coming <laughs> Yeah, well, I was experimental before our time in a yeah. lot of ways with that, wasn't it? But you, you at that point, you'd already known Ian Brown. He'd been in the patrol oh, with sorry. John and Andy Cousins before. Yeah. And then he'd, him, and, him and Andy had nicked off. They actually come up, didn't they, one, yeah. one Sunday? To, they came to, to the Jamil. We were thinking of getting together making a big band out because the Mill was a three-piece band. Yeah. And you said uh, Ian and Andy are going to come up. They fancied forming a bigger yeah. band. And they came in. I remember they pulled up in a big American car that Andy had. 55 Chevrolet. That's the one, yeah. And they came walking yeah. in and we we were just doing our thing. We fought with trucks and broken yeah. glass. <laughs> <And> just, <laughs> yeah. Goodbye. Andy, Andy, Andy played Rocky Villa guitar. I've, I've still got the recording of it. Oh, brilliant. And, uh, and then they went. <laughs> yeah, never to be seen again. <laughs> yeah, but happy days. And then uh, that sort of went on through 85. And then I think late 85, early 86, you got a day job. You went working at the the palace, didn't you? Doing I went, yeah, lights. I went to work at the opera house and the, and the palace theatres for yeah. a bit. Uh, you know, no pay, no play in it. So yeah. uh, Maggie Thatcher's Britain wasn't good for uh, for lining your pockets with dough for uh, for good times. But I loved my job at the the palace and, and and the opera house. Really did love it. And I used to bits at the Davenport and Stockport, and there was one in Gatley as well. But yeah, made good friends there. Uh, worked on lots of the big shows that used to come out of. Uh, the West End of London. Yeah. It was good. And, and, was, it, and the hours were good because you only had to do like a, a matinee Wednesday afternoon and then it, it was all starting from about 6.30 at night till 10. So that was good. 
and then used to end up in that bloody Hardman Street club round the corner till stupid o'clock because <laughs> there was no getting up to be done, was there? So as a musician, then you were pretty much off the off the mat, weren't you? Chris went off and started a band called The High that made some beautiful yeah, records. Yeah. I went off and joined a bunch of Herberts from Oldham, calling ourselves in Spiral Carpets. Yeah. You were pretty much off off the map for a while as a musician. Yeah. As, as, as I remember it. And there was that thing in 87 where I was in the boardwalk one night, I think with Graham out the Inspirals, and it was a quiet night. I can't remember who the band was that were playing. But I remember Ian Brown and John Squire were sat at a table. And um, it was when they had a table and chairs at the boardwalk. <coughs> I went over chatting to them and um, said, how was it going? And Ian said, oh, it's not so good, actually. We just uh, Our bass player's left. Right. Uh, Pete. Yeah, we were after a new bass player. Do you know any? And I said, "Well, our Scott, our bass player at the time, Scott Curry, he'd love that gig." Yeah, because the Roses were established a bit on the scene locally. They weren't. Yeah, they, none of us knew how big we were going to get. We said we can't have Scott because we need him, but I'll keep my ears open. And the next day, I bumped into your kid in Manchester, your Greg That's on right, Oldham yeah. Street. It's a legend, isn't it? I said, "Tell your kid, sack that job off, get his bass back on the Roses, need a bass player." Yeah, yeah, and that was it, wasn't it? Cheers, Glenn. <laughs> See, now he's, now he's going to hit me for money now, isn't he? Nice Check right. him out. Nice, right. <laughs> but have you got any? <laughs> so, yeah, from that, from that, it was pretty whirlwind then, wasn't it? I mean, because within weeks, I remember one of your first things was going recording with uh, Peter Rook, uh, Sweet 16, Rochdale's studio. He was yeah. going to produce your uh, his Elephant Storm. Yeah, we, we did some, uh, I think we demoed a few things up there with him. And uh, then we ended up recording in Revolution in Cheadle with... Uh, I think it was Mike who used to like engineer or something for New Order and, and okay. We did Elephant Stone. Probably did some bees up at uh Sweet Sixteen. And then it was just one of them, uh, give the job up. Used to take two or three buses a, a day over to International Two and rehearse in uh this back bar down there every day. Mm. And there was a place, uh, the spirit lock up in Charlton, which is now a, a carpet warehouse or something, but we used to do that until King of the Slums used to come in and, and start making such a racket next door that we had to down tills and shoot off. Yeah. Yeah. Those early days of the Roses, it, it was mind-blowing for us to see, as not just as friends, but as outsiders from that band, it was unique what they did. The whole approach, like doing the warehouse parties that nobody had ever done, that yeah. was all brand new. Doing Refusing to do encores. Ian walking off while still singing onto the dance floor and facing up to guys twice his oh, size. Oh, I always used to do that, didn't I? It yeah. was like, I've never seen, I'd never seen a band at that time do anything like I, that. I, I, I suppose, it, you know, we used to go watching them because they were mates and all that before I was in them. And, uh, I, yeah, I, I always knew there was something a bit special with them, you know, and, and one day quality wills out, don't it? You know what I mean? And I knew they'd get there somewhere down the line. But to find myself in it, Mm. was even better, you know. Yeah. Because it's like my dream from school was being a band, make a record, go on top of the pops. <laughs> and we did that pretty quick. <laughs> you know, and then it's like, well, you've got to set yourself some new targets, boy, yeah. you know. Didn't make any money out of it, though, did you? Didn't make, no, did, did, you know what? It, 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 it's a lot put on money. It's, it's not all about the money. I'd, you know, if, if, we'd, if we'd have earned the dough that we have sort of now, then, mm. I, I don't think probably one or two of us would still be here, you yeah. know. What were your best memories of those early days? Just getting in vans, just it was an absolute novel, you know. There's four members of the, of the band and, and all the entourage of the crew who were all mates. And it was it was like a rolling comedy club, it was funny. But don't take nothing away from the fact that we weren't absolutely dedicated to our craft because we were. Yeah. And anyone who knows us, and you know, and people would say, well, I'd say, oh, you've been lucky. Look, it, don't enter into it. 
you have to create your own. And what you created was just it was unique and beautiful, yeah. and it inspired the next generation of uh, musicians. Did it not just from. Well, I'd like to think so, but I'd, I'd, I'd never like stick my hat out and go, "Yeah, anybody owes us out," because no one. Did. If you can, it's like the same way the class gave us the seeds of thought to go out, pick it up, and do it yourself. Mm. It, that's the way we looked at it. Was like music isn't a closed shop. If you can give some kid on an estate in Chester or Liverpool or Glasgow or whatever the same beans to get an instrument and go do it for themselves, and you've won, you know. Yeah. That's 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 what it's all about, isn't it? That's what you did. Yeah. Chapter one ended in 96, Reading Festival. And then immediately after, I remember I spoke to you the day that the news came out, soon after Reading, the announcement came out that you were sacking it off, splitting up. And I spoke to you on the phone that day. I don't even remember this call, but you said uh, your actual words were something like, shit's at the fam. I'm off to London, got to speak to lawyers and managers and that. And then I'm going to come back up north and we'll get the mill back together. <laughs> so you're like, yes, right, okay. Get the old get the old keyboards out ready and all that. And anyway, you only went and bumped into Bobby Gillespie then, didn't you? Well, I, I actually bumped into him on the Last Roses tour in Brighton. And him and his girlfriend at the time, uh, Emily Hughes, were uh, walking back to the flat with bags of uh, bloody shopping from whichever store they'd been to. And we kidnapped him and got him right on the lash. And then we kidnapped him on our tour bus. And he came and he ended up and said, Bobby said he woke up in Newport with me getting screamed at off my then partner, the mother of Joe, my oldest kid, because uh, I'd not been asked to phone it up or something. I don't know. Just been having too good of a time again. But I think sometime during that journey, maybe it was mooted that if, if, if this came apart, how would they feel about me going that way and, and so the deal was kind of mooted and then when it all did fall apart straight away Alex Nightingale's on the phone and, and, and I'm down and I'm and, and I'm in there but I did phone Ian to to ask for his blessing which I thought was honourable an honourable yeah. and decent thing to do for, yeah. a, for a man who had been through the trenches with and, and, and had the good and then had the bad mm. And and Ian just totally gave me his blessing, and then it was all all good, you know. Yeah, beautiful. And yeah. what a great band to! I can't think of a more suitable band for you to have popped into uh, coming out of the roses and in, mm. into Primal Scream because you had a bunch of kindred spirits there, didn't you? In that band. Oh my God, they made me look like Alan Jones in comparison. You know, I was going to say, is, it, is it true the uh, the extent of the debauchery? Oh in my the, uh... God, it's uh, Joe, uh, <laughs> it, 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 savage, savagery. <laughs> <laughs> and now not more than one of them is dead is beyond me. But then again, some people are made from bloody Kevlar, aren't they, when it comes to it? Did you two the States? Were you playing with the Stones or something with the Primals or not? Well, it was a big band you'd support. Yeah, uh, we did five gigs with the Stones. We did uh, four in Europe and Twickenham. It was nice. They would come and watch us because we kind of in, in London, you bump into the set of people and you knew Jay Jagger and you knew Marlon Richards and... You know, Marlon invited invited me and Bobby into Keith's personal dressing room called the Shebeen and we walked in and it stood up like a bloody uh, Moroccan tent. There's a full-size snooker table in there, uh, a bar and a jukebox blaring Chuck Berry out and he stood there with his telecaster. This is backstage? Backstage at a Stones gig and me and Bobby like pinching each other like, check it out. And he comes over, he's like, hey, Marlon says you cats rock, man, you know, and... And it was like, yeah, this Keith Richards knows who we are. Brilliant. And then you turn around on stage and Charlie's watching you 
And then he comes up to me and does later and says, you're the great rhythm section. It's just like, mate, you know what I mean? Amazing. This is uh, this is different gravy, this. Happy days. Yeah, yeah. It was a good day, great chapter for your life, that one. Yeah. Do you know what? Here's how tight the Rolling Stones are. Go on. <laughs> they, made, they made us buy tickets for our birds. Oh, did they? Right. Oh, sorry, <laughs> so you can't say birds, can you? Our, 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 uh, I think our, you can. Our betters, <laughs> should I say. And, and, but, but to get round it, we, we give them jobs as wardrobe mistresses oh, to get them in. But I think Mick still stood there clicking them in and making sure they paid. <laughs> That's how he's rich, isn't it? That's how rich Probably, people yeah. stay rich because they tight arses. Let's talk about free bass. 2005, somebody came up with this amazing concept of getting three of the best bass players ever. All... all Manchester lads, Andy Rourke, Smiths, Peter Oak, New Order, Joy Division, yourself, Stone Roses, Primals, and you became free bass, which is play on the word three bass. Well, do, do worth, you know, worth it just for that, wasn't it? Oh, do, do you know what? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was that was good for Lincoln. But that, that come about with was the fact that uh, I think I was in between albums with a scream. Okay was always complaining that Bernard had never do enough graft. And, it, and, and it, you, know, you know what it's like. You see what he's doing now, Peter, with the light. is a workaholic. Yeah. So we just decided to start getting our heads together at this mad Rogers mad place up in the hills and uh, just chucking some ideas down on tape. And then I'm out then again with the scream and, and, and Ucky and Phil are in there chopping things up. And next thing you know, they, they formulated these ideas into songs and it was like, well, let's go and try and attempt to play him. And, and, and we ended up doing six gigs with him and, and pressed an LP up and then it all fell apart rather quickly. <laughs> <laughs> like you said, the name was The Grin, wasn't it? That was the big thing, yeah. the free bass idea. But, yeah. And then you had a bit of a fallout with Lucky, didn't you? In, uh, was it 2010 when you had a go at him on oh, Twitter? Oh, that, that was me. Pissed up one night. And was it, it the vodka talking? It was the vodka talking. And I, I, I most humbly <laughs> apologise. No, you're best in it. Kissed the maid up. Boys. Yeah, it was a bit out of order. But you know what I'm like? If someone sticks a twig into the hornet's nest, someone's getting stung, aren't they? Yeah. Do you remember that time when... We thought he'd died on our couch in Stockport. Well, I just remember being very drunk. <laughs> <laughs> but Charlie's actual words, wife was there. Uh, I thought he was dying. <laughs> I think he's fucking dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, that's been in primal screen. We'll do that to you. You know what I mean? But thankfully, he's still here, and uh, you and Ucky are good mates again. Yeah. Um, and you got into the club DJing thing as well, as I did myself, and Ucky did subsequently. Great way of meeting your fans, wasn't it? I'm a firm believer in in in. Uh, and trying to give something back, you know, in, in, in a weird way. If people want to come up and have the photo took with you then, and come up and, and get something signed, I, I think people who who consistently push people away in that position want a, a kick in the nads, basically. Because they've forgotten. Because these are the people that put you where you are. Absolutely, absolutely. But on, on, alternatively, I think I was getting chinned in some club <laughs> off of it. Off him elder one night and someone come up for an autograph and went, do you mind if I just finish getting battered first? <laughs> <laughs> Probably deserved it, love, as well, if you're listening. She will be listening. <laughs> Have you uh, hung up your DJ headphones and you're still yeah, doing it? I can't be arsed with it all right. anymore, Clint. You know, what? You know, for me, going out and, and doing that, it's great, like you say, meeting, meeting the fans, but when you just stood there, all I do is start walloping drinks down my neck and... Uh, much as I used to enjoy it, I've, I've wound my neck right in now a bit on that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Settled down a bit. Yeah. 50 bloody six, mate. You're looking good for it. Thank you. You're still breathing. That's the main thing, isn't it? Still yeah. breathing. Just. Uh, let's talk about a moment in 2011 when it became quite public. Well, before it became public, the moment that you realised that the the band was getting back together, 2011, the Roses were getting back together. How did you feel? Were you the happiest man in the world? It's weird because 
because my mum, uh, God bless her, up and died, didn't she? And uh, just uh, right at the the end of uh, rehearsals for the scream tour, and in between the dying and, and the funeral, I had to go out doing gigs and all that. And then I think we played Manchester on the Sunday, and the funeral was on the Monday. So, so I, I, there was a day off, and it's and then down to Brighton. So, uh, you know, the funeral worked out well on my day off. You know what I mean? So I was expecting the scream lot to. To just get the bus and go straight down to Brighton, you know what I mean, and lead me to it. And then I was going to take the train down and join him next day. But as I'm driving up in the bloody big black limo behind the coffin and all that, mm. um, I look and there's Bobby and all the lads, which is a nice show of solidarity. Yeah. And then Bobby's just sort of like looks and I looked over and and, uh, and there's John and Ian stood together. It's the yeah. first time I'd seen them in each other's company in maybe sixteen years, fifteen yeah. years. Yeah. So that was absolutely heartwarming to see that, and I thought, well, if nothing else, if they've rekindled the friendship, then it, then it, then it's good. I think mm. my old dink dying has, has served a, a good purpose to mend a, a childhood friendship in a way. Yeah. But then when it went to something else, and, and then this talk of the the band reforming was great because it was always like unfinished business for me anyway, and I'm kind of glad we've done it, yeah. you know, because because we. We just ended up playing to the potential which we had back in the day, but which was denied us by an unfortunate chain of events, yeah. shall we say? Yeah, and, and and many different facets to it, none of which I'm going to go into. You don't need to. Yeah, <laughs> but the reception that the not just the news of you getting back together, the reception you got when you went out there was just phenomenal. It must have been breathtaking. I remember a moment in my life where the Inspirals were split in '95, got back together in 2003. First gig after nine year break was at uh, Sheffield Uni, I think. And we're about to go on stage. We're behind the backdrop. The intro tape was playing. And the, the feeling that I got, it's just one of the most amazing feelings I've ever had in my life. Oh, when they were about to walk on stage. You must have had that times a thousand when you walked back out on the Power Hall, Warrington. Well, well yeah, it, it, it wasn't. It was, it, it, it was a, to coin the term, a, the euphoric release massively. Yeah. We knew what we'd done. First time round, we knew the effect we had on people. We knew the loyalty of the fans, and it was staggering to see uh, just the, the enormity of, of of how much bigger it, it just seemed second time around. Yeah, let's talk about your own life now. You settled down a lot, as we've said. You've got two little boys. Are they six and a bit now? Uh, yeah, they were six in December, and I love them. And yeah. it's, it, it, it it's made me. Sort of, you've got to reevaluate your stuff, and it's made me wow my neck in because you know what I'm like. Well, my nickname up off some of my mates is Rock Pig, <laughs> and I certainly have been a rock pig. Rock pig. So, but now I'm a, I'm more like a big fat old sow lying down on his side while the rock pigs just <laughs> suck every ounce of you out. Jabber the hut. Yeah. <laughs> and do you still play bass? I know. So could... George was really taken with that. Uh, Feel it still by Portugal, the man. Yeah, tune that. Which it? is a good tune. Yeah, so yeah. I'd sit there and play that for him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or I'd sit there and play whatever's on the TBB's channel theme music for him. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you see bands like like on TV on live? Do you hear bands on the radio now that you think oh, I could I could be in that band? Yeah, you, Joe. You never fall out of love with music. You know, when you're in a band, you, I think you're always keep your eye open for what's coming next. You know, what could be the one that's going to... It's like a coconut shy. Who's going to lob the ball that knocks your coconut off your comfy <laughs> little pedestal? 
I know for a fact when you were doing your radio stuff and and you was watching bands like the Arctic Monkeys coming through and mm. uh, you know, it's thinking, yeah, man, because you're always the time, all the time waiting for the next thing. Like, where's this generation's punk rock? Mm. So I think bands like that are kind of at the spearhead of, of that for, for, for the latest kids. And, you know, when you look around you and there are good bands around. Mm. I think they went through a, a, a period of time where maybe early in the 2000s and so music just seemed to take a dive, you know, yeah. and, it, and it was getting very careerist and nobody had anything to say. You know, I'm from the school of, of uh, if you've got a platform, then bloody shout your gob off and, and, and make yourself heard and yeah. and get your point out. Make the world better. Make the world better if you can, or try and turn people's heads onto something that they can then go make the world better with. You know yeah. what I mean? I'm still always waiting for the next punk rock movement. There's always something around the corner. Come on, get a move on. Yeah, come on, you, the next generation. Yeah. Let's talk about this city then, Manchester. You were born and bred here. How much do you love it? Well, do you know what? I tried living away from it for a year once when we'd been in Monmouth doing uh, doing the second coming. And uh, the countryside's lovely, but after a bit, when you're a city rat like I am, a city hobgoblin, as Marquis would have it, <laughs> you miss the concrete and you miss the hustle and the bustle a little bit. And I will always have roots in Manchester, even though I can I can live anywhere, Manchester will always be my city. Yeah. I don't think there's another city like it on God's earth, to be fair. There's an attitude about the people here. We like to do things our way. We don't like to be told what to do. We're very innovative. You know, if you if you look from from Rutherford and the guys splitting the atom and you look at Alan Turing and you look at the people who've in you know, invented graphene and you know, you look at the what you were talking about, the Pankhurst and the ladies' suffragette movement and mm the cooperative movement and we we do things differently up here Comes we're, we're innovators Manchester will always provide innovation whether it be in the arts or what have you science I just think there's there's something in the psyche of folk from up here yeah. you know we won't have that London dictating to us we, we'll, we'll do things <laughs> on our own terms and, and we're bloody right to think that way absolutely we're a cut above I agree with that who would you say are your favourite humans of Manchester ever Manny Past or present? Well, I think <laughs> here's one for you. See if you remember this. The first band I could ever remember seeing live was when my dad worked at Oldham Rugby Club on a Sunday, and uh, there was Sharples Hall Street Conservative Club. We were going there before a match at the Watersheddings, and uh, I saw the Reg Coats experience. Oh, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and he commented on, on, on my pants, which my mum had made. He said, oh, I, I like your pants. <laughs> I don't know what, what his game was, but I was quite taken with, with the fact that some guy in a band had, had said my kecks were nice. Amazing. And, uh, so Reg Courts, is he one of your humans in Manchester? <laughs> That's his first. Like, Can you that. believe that? Put him in there. Right, listen, uh, no, uh, uh, <laughs> you, you've also got to stick in there. Mancunian musical aid house for me are like... Uh, Wayne Barrett and Mick Rossi from Slaughter. Yeah. Pete Shelley, God bless his cotton socks, and Steve Diggle from the Buzzcocks. You know, Barry Adamson is a bass player. Yes, he's right up there. Yeah. All the kids out of the Smiths who I know very well and they're good friends. Mm. Anyone who's picked it up and run with it and, and made themselves a career gets a thumbs up from me in this city. You know what I mean? Brilliant. There's no such word as can't. It's there true, is though. can do. Yeah. Yeah. Finally, man, it. 
Describe Manchester in three words. Full of lunatics. Perfect. Manny, the mod, Gary Manfield. Thank you for being a human of excess Manchester. Thank you so much, guys. Keep the faith. That was Gary Manfield, a.k.a. Manny. Next week, I'm joined by the iconic punk poet, Dr. John Cooper Clark. Don't forget to follow us on social media and subscribe to Humans of Excess Manchester. Rate us, feel free to leave us a review. We love hearing what you think about our work. Thanks again to our friends at Safer Roads GM for sponsoring this series, and thank you for listening. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.